นะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิอ๋อ the next talk in this uh, anthology um, called uh, Direct Realization Volume Three of the Lumpur Sumato Collected Teachings. This is Chapter Fifteen, Stillness and Response, and these are all talks from the book uh, The Way It Is, um, uh, Dhamma talks given in the Winter Retreat of 1988. Stillness and response. When we began our winter retreat, I asked you to accept the whole of what happens during the next two months. Make it your intention not just to have the kind of retreat that you would like, but to open yourself to the possibility of whatever arises. Psychologically, this prepares us for the way life moves and changes. When we set our mind on trying to make life into what we want, we always feel frustrated when it doesn't quite go the way that we would like. So try changing your attitude to one of acceptance and willingness to look at and understand experiences, rather than to just rather than just trying to get rid of them. You're developing this practice of stillness, the stillness which is everywhere, whether you are in a group or alone. In order to be with the silence, we have to realize the stillness, the silence. In other words, be that way, be still and silent. If one just follows the restless sensations of the body and the proliferations of the mind, then of course silence is impossible. It can even be a threatening experience because one is so identified with the agitation and restlessness of the sensory realm and endlessly seeking to be born into it. The emphasis now is to recognize that restlessness is what it is. Recognize that restlessness for what it is. No longer to follow it, but to train oneself towards calm. This means not just suppressing or persecuting the bodily formation, but training it, because these bodies need to be trained with kindness. If you brutalize animals, they are not very nice. They're just frightened, untrustworthy. Miserable creatures. To train an animal, when, uh, <coughs> to train an animal doesn't mean you just pamper it. It means to give it everything that it wants and that, uh, to fulfill every desire. To sort of be too uh, too soft and too uh, uh, say un uh, unchallenging for it. Not just pamper it, but that you guide it. It's the same with your own body. Your body needs to be respected and guided into not following its restless energy and habits, but this doesn't mean that you should deny it everything either. As a trainer, you need to be both kind and firm, not stubborn or brutal, not kind in the sense of giving in to everything because that's not really being kind, but caring, being concerned, 
having the right amount of interest, the proper attitude towards your own body and mind. So there's a few things in there. Um, so in, in terms of stillness, then uh, that sense of um, recognizing the habit uh, of mind that's always uh, interested or wants to be captivated or engaged with uh, colorful, moving, interesting, uh, can even be you know, irritating things uh, to recognize that we don't have to hold on to the field of sensory experience, but we can focus instead upon stillness and silence and spaciousness and to to train the heart, train the mind to be something that, that cherishes that, to not feel that you've got to fill up that space with something to do, something to be, some, uh, some opinion or habit or memory or activity, but to... Uh, in a sense, uh, inclined towards that quality of uh, of stillness and uh, and uh, silence and and in this respect, in particular, uh, living at a place like uh, like Amaravati, using the time to to be alone as much as you can to practice meditation, and in, in particular, I found that the uh, the developing of, the development of the inner listening, listening to the the inner sound is uh, extraordinarily helpful in this respect. Uh, if one can discern that, that uh, inner vibration, the inner sound, the nada, then this can be something that is a, 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 a continual presence, so that even in the midst of activity and movement and, and noise and uh, an engagement, that, uh, that inner sound, that, uh, that sound of silence, it is ever-present. So uh, even in the midst of noise, you can be... The focusing upon that uh, that inequality, and so there's a, a disentangling, as a as a disengagement, and in particular, uh, as Lumpur points out here, it can be that sometimes that uh, that silence can be uh, can be threatening. Uh, I think uh, yesterday there was a question about about you know, when you look, let go of self-view and uh, and there's and use ways of reflection to uh, say. Uh, uh, see the empty nature of uh, uh, of the self idea, I and me and mine. It, it can be threatening. Similarly, just the quality of stillness, not not being busy doing something, it can be threatening. It can be challenging. It can be upset, uh, upsetting, and and uh, something that there's a a, a a turning away from. So it's a, one of the aspects of of making effort is in a way turning towards that. That uh, that stillness, that silence, that spaciousness, and opening the heart to it, recognizing that the the uh, the, the beautiful quality uh, that the thing that is often threatened by silence and stillness um, is those habits of self view. That if I, as long as I'm doing something, as long as there's me being active, then there's a me here. But yeah, who am I when there's nothing to do? Yeah, you know, what what am I when there's no thing to engage with? And uh, so we, we define ourselves by having something to be irritated by, to be worried about, to be planning, to be remembering, and that, that feeds the, uh, the habits of, uh, of I and me and mine. But it, it takes a recognition of that, just as we were saying yesterday, it takes a recognition of, of that, oh, what's that in the heart that wants to be busy, wants to be irritated? <laughs> you know, for, for many people, if, if there is that kind of unsettled, insecure, Feeling of the, that sense of um, uh, being uh, being threatened, then 
they'll, they'll go around and look for somebody to be annoyed with, start an argument, <laughs> just uh, find something to push against, so that there'll be a feeling of, that there's a me here who's doing some pushing. And that uh, often it's what, what I like to call undefined being is, is extraordinarily threatening. There's, uh, there's no thing to define myself by, and then there's a, a kind of quavering or, or agitation in the heart. So, first of all, recognizing that, uh, if silence, stillness, spaciousness, that undefined quality is, is threatening, notice that, and then feel that, that, that sort of trembling, tremulous quality, that kind of quavering in the heart. Notice that, feel that. And often uh, using the physical sensation of that, not looking at, at it so much as a psychological quality, but almost like the physical, the, the tangible physical quality of that, <laughs> that quavering in, in the being. Just know that as a physical sensation, just as if you were shivering in the cold, or uh, uh, just to, to know that, to feel that. And then uh, to, to consciously turn towards that, uh, uh, the experience, and say, it's silent, it's spacious, it's peaceful, it's still. And then you can use reflective inquiry what's what's so frightening about this why is this threatening who is there to be threatened and what's there to be threatened by there's ways of, of exploring and investigating that and then uh, the the more that we develop a sense of appreciation and genuine enjoyment of that spacious still silent uh, undefined quality then the uh, there's various different ways you can develop that of noticing space and developing that uh, consciousness of space, but developing the listening to the inner sound, the sound of silence. So that becomes like a a, um, a kind of ever-present companion. It's like your your best friend that's always with you. That you can be remind it can be something to remind you of that spacious, still, silent uh, uh, inner quality, even in the midst of a, a lot of activity. And as Lumpur goes on to talk about uh, training ourselves with uh, loving kindness, uh, I think it, it, he describes it very, very well here. It's being kind just doesn't mean saying uh, saying yes to everything. Like if uh, if you've tried to raise a, a puppy or a um, or a child, you know, if the child says, "I want ice cream for breakfast," then a, a good parent won't give the child ice cream for breakfast every day. I would suggest. <laughs> Or like uh, if you're training a, a puppy, you know, that you have to, to be genuinely caring and, and compassionate and kind, but also there's times when you say, no, put that down. Or like you, it uh, pees on the carpet for the 15th time, then you pick it up, take it outside, say, no, this is, this is, uh, this is where you empty your bladder, outside on the grass, not inside on the carpet. And so there's a training, and so there's a direction that's being given, uh, uh, and that that's something that, uh, that there is uh, energy and effort applied to, but it's applied with a, a basis uh, of, uh, of loving-kindness. So that, uh, uh, again, here, uh, as Lumpur says, if you brutalize animals, they're, they're not very nice. If, if we try to control our mind just through a kind of brutal attitude, now, behave, shut up, sit down, behave, <laughs> stop wondering. <laughs> if there's a, a kind of tyrannical, domineering attitude, we, we try to meditate or, or work with our mind on a basis of of uh, just commanding and uh, and threat then just as with an animal or a child 
there's a uh, you're miserable being so in such a sort of aggressive domineering state and then the child or the animal is, is also similarly you know frightened and intimidated and you might have a little bit of control for to a certain degree for a certain amount of time but as soon as you turn your back then the things will fall apart the, the child will misbehave or the, the animal will, will run away and uh, it'll be a, a very painful intense uh, relationship so working with our mind uh, developing loving kindness uh, with our mind is learning to be uh, not seeing our our thoughts or our emotions or the body as a, a problem or an enemy or something that has to be sort of forced into um, behaving in a particular way but working with the mind you know with the body with the personality and uh, and so that then there's a, a collaborative attitude as a, a way of uh, of um, uh, uh, of establishing a basic uh, sense of relatedness a basic quality of caring and then on the on the the foundation of that caring and loving kindness then you can steer you can guide you say no <laughs> you've just drifted your attention's drifted away from the breath for this is the 15th time in the last two minutes okay <laughs> uh, you know, then notice that let go of the distraction and come back to, to the breathing you, you do the steering but the steering is on a, a friendly collaborative supportive basis rather than a you, know, you failed again you stop that get back you know behave uh, do uh, do what you're supposed to be doing as a sort of uh, in a kind of angry school teacher or sort of domineering army officer uh, attitude because everybody loses in, in that respect it's a, a miserable state so uh, you find that if you if you work with the mind with a, a quality of mindfulness and, and, and loving kindness metta there's a collaborative attitude then the result of that is peacefulness and, and clarity and in the buddhist understanding of things the means and the end are always connected as the old political um, uh, motto that uh, the end justifies the means uh, you can use a violent or aggressive means to get a peaceful result supposedly in the political sphere but in in the buddha's understanding and the buddhist way of training ourselves it's completely different that the the end and the means uh, are completely connected so if you use a a kindly collaborative uh, and harmonious means then you'll have a harmonious and peaceful end uh, the result will be will be will be uh, say matching the cause if we use a a, a means a method which is aggressive and uh, egotistical or, or forceful uh, domineering then you'll have a result which is equally stressful and and agitated and uh, and unpeaceful so any questions thoughts reflections yes anagarika margit yeah I, um yeah, I was just wondering because. Uh, yeah, so. Well, so it's I, I noticed how important is it how how to phrase uh, certain sentences like in Buddhism you have this, oh the body is inherently like dukkha and basically if I say this to the body even if it's true, but how I phrase it if I say like oh this body is, 
needs so much care or attention, it's totally has a different effect on the body itself because it's like programming, like, oh, you are Dukhan, it's, uh, yeah, it, it has a really strong effect. So I, I can connect to this very much. Just a reflection. Yes, uh, well, that, it's it's very true. I think the uh, I always encourage people to uh, to develop your own phrases, your own way of speaking. That I feel uh, meditation and and spiritual training is it, it it works best if it's an experimental process. You you try things out and see how how they work. So yeah, there are many suttas and teachings, different teachers. They phrase things in different ways. Well, different languages, you know, you're, uh, that you're from Hungary, right? So, you know, how you would put something in Hungarian in your own language is very different than, say, if you were reading German or, you know, or, or in English. And so um, to get a feeling for, okay, well, this is the direction that it's, uh, this is the quality it's talking about. Now, what's a, uh, a way of phrasing this that brings a, a beneficial result? So you try things out, you, you put it in different ways, and then, and then you you kind of develop your own language, and then also things change over time, so that a phrase or a particular word that you might use now that's very helpful this year, in a year's time, eh, it doesn't quite have the same same result. That something else has come along that uh, sort of puts things in a a more skillful, more more helpful way. So that uh, rather than just following a formula sort of obeying instructions, I feel it's most skillful to have that kind of inquiring attitude to say, well, how's this working? What's the result? And then being ready to change things around, like you, you use your own words and then be being guided by that. And so then it's um, you're informed by the, the scriptural teachings, like from the, the Pali, the canon, and uh, from the various teachers, but you really become, in a way, you're, you're learning how to be your own teacher, which is the most helpful way of operating. Okay, to continue. How to calm the body. One way is through, quote, sweeping meditation, unquote, in which you sweep your attention through the body, concentrating on the sensation in the body as you do so. The body needs to be noticed and accepted for what it is. So we bring into consciousness even the tensions, unpleasant sensations, and sensationless parts of the body. When we do that, going from the top of the head to the, uh, to the soles of the feet and back up again, the body will feel relaxed. It's a very healthy meditation, and it will help to train the mind not to be caught up in conceptual proliferation and endless wandering. Then, as these forms start to calm down, we begin to feel much more aware of the silence of the mind. We can abide more and more in that emptiness, where there is no self, just the present moment as it is. The stillness and silence are ever-present wherever we are, no matter what condition we happen to be in. You can abide in emptiness by just standing among the barren trees of winter and looking at them, without creating anything from them. You can feel a sense of perfect calm and contentment with just being still and silent like the trees. Our ego might say, well, I do not want to become a tree. I want to express my true inner creativity, my unique personality. We listen to the inner voices that complain and grumble 
the wanting to become something, that which stands out or exists. But we're not feeding these creatures. We're letting them go and moving towards the stillness, the silence. This word existence means standing forth. Something that doesn't exist doesn't stand forth. So when we say non-existing, we're not talking about killing ourselves and no longer being alive, but about no longer following the desire to stand out and become something, to be separate. That sounds like a really nihilistic view. Ajahn Sumedho doesn't want to exist. Oh, poor man, he needs to see a psychiatrist. But non-existence doesn't mean that we do not want to have any personalities, that we just want to become dreary, boring people. That's not it. It's the ability to abide in the subtlety of just being aware, open and sensitive, without being caught in the, de in the delusions of trying to become something else, or stand out in some way. It's just realizing the peace of non-existence, because non-existence is peaceful. And when there are non-existence and emptiness, there is the knowing, brightness, wisdom, awareness, clarity, enlightenment. Things are as they are, suchness as isness. So then to, to say a few things about this, um, so Lumpur Sumedha would often talk about uh, having this kind of uh, loving kindness towards the body, as he says, um, <clears throat> the body needs to be noticed and accepted for what it is. Often he, he would expand on that and say it's, you know, how it's, it's really helpful to relate to your body as if it was uh, your, your best friend or like a, a pet that you, uh, that you have always with you. And that just like if you have a dog or a cat, you know, cats are a little bit more kind of aloof generally. <laughs> you know, at least they appear that way in the main part. But uh, uh, many animals, they respond very positively to being paid attention to. So when, when they, uh, uh, they are, are they're petted, and they're, particularly with dogs, you know, I grew up with a house full of, of dogs from my childhood. When, when you pay attention to them and rub their head or scratch their, their, their tummy, then they, they're really happy, they really enjoy it, they, they, they're glad to see you. And so that uh, Lumpur would often say how if we relate to our body with loving kindness, then it responds, it kind of lights up, oh, yeah, the, the master is paying attention, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm loved, I'm appreciated, and there's a, a kind of a, 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 a glow. Sometimes when he would talk in that way, you'd, the more cynical amongst the, the crowd would think, Lumpur Sumedha, what are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, but if you if you if you uh, actually uh, work with that that attitude and you start to relate to the body in that way, you do find that there is a kind of a of a, a brightening, a lightening up, an energizing of the body. I found anyway. And so that, uh, in particular, because uh, uh, in our conditioning nowadays, we very easily live up in our heads, and that uh, the body is often just a a thing that stops our chin from scraping around along the ground when, when we would move around. It's just a kind of uh, a way to get our head to move around the planet. And if it doesn't hurt, then we ignore it and stop thinking about it or don't pay it any attention. Um, um, this is a generalization, of course. It's a bit of a sweeping statement, but often it's like that. And then in particular, uh, when the body starts hurting, if you have like a painful back or a you know, headache or... Uh, painful knees or whatever, 
then uh, in meditation in particular, then as when we do notice the body, then we relate to it with uh, uh, with fear uh, of what that pain is going to turn into, or what's going to happen to that knee or that or your back, or is this headache ever going to go away, or aversion to to the painful feeling that's there, so that the the body again this is a generalization but if we haven't really developed a lot of body awareness and loving kindness to it then the only time we are paying attention to the body is with fear and aversion <laughs> so so uh, it's really helpful to note if that's the case you, you find that to be true to to notice that and to spend time consciously spreading loving kindness through the body and and i found this uh uh very very apparent when um i was invited to go to mount kailash um about eight years ago now my goodness 2013. so during that winter retreat it was it was really really cold it was a freezing cold winter and i was uh engaging in a in a fit, uh, sort of get fit program so i was going out for walks every day and, and often with a, a backpack on and um so i was very very rigorous and um uh so strict with with my regime because i knew if i went up to the himalayas and tried to walk around mount kailash without being physically prepared i was gonna really suffer and probably make things difficult for the people i was traveling with so i put a lot of effort into to getting fit and sometimes uh, particularly the day after one prayer when the day was open I would set out at about eight in the morning with a packed lunch and just walk, you walk all day long. So maybe you stop for a, a few breaks here and there and to eat the meal. But uh, I'd often come back at eight or nine or sometimes ten o'clock at night. So after walking for for um, a long, long time, you know, in the dark, <laughs> getting back, uh, and and my body would be kind of aching uh, all over, sore feet or sore backs or legs, uh, and along the way uh, there. Were, often be various tweaks like a particular place in my my leg would feel you know really strained or or, or painful or there's some uh, a muscle in my back would be you know really uh, really aching or knotted up and and um and so i, I really noticed this uh, how i was basically just paying attention to the path i was walking on and and what the landscape was like and then only when my body started to hurt did i really pay attention to to it in a in a close way. So I brought this teaching of Lumpur Sumedho's to mind about loving kindness and, and saw this habit of of just meeting the, the body with uh with aversion or with, with with fear, like, oh my goodness, what's happening to my leg? Oh no, the other leg now. Oh my feet, my ankles, what's happening to my ankles? And it was kind of not exactly every day, but you know, several times a week I was having these uh very noticeable aches and pains. And so if I took the trouble to to change the attitude and to be consciously spreading loving kindness through the body when they, the bits didn't hurt, not just wait until it hurt it, till it, till it all, it all uh, was in pain, but as I was walking along, I would send these feelings of loving kindness down into my legs and my feet saying, you know, good job feet, you know, ankles, you're really, you know, you're really doing great. Thank you so much for you doing a fantastic job. You know, I really appreciate all uh, all the flexibility and strength that we have there. And again, it can sound a little bit cheesy, like Ajahn Amro, you're getting as bad as Ajahn Sumedho. This is ridiculous. But uh, in terms of actually helping the body and making the process of, of walking and, and traveling around with a hefty backpack, it made it much more enjoyable. And uh, and the, the body really seemed to respond in a very good way. And so 
when I actually did go to the Himalayas, we walked in from uh, northern Nep northwestern Nepal through the Humla Valley into into Tibet, and then uh, crossed into Tibet, and then uh, traveled up to to Mount Kailash, and then the three or, three or four days three or four days walking around Mount Kailash. Then I didn't suffer from any kind of serious injuries, and the, my lungs were okay, and uh, uh, my uh, my body felt really comfortable most of, most of the time. I mean, it was hard work, but uh, it was a a really good exercise in that. And along the way, I kept uh, remembering to develop the sense of of uh, spreading loving kindness through the body and expressing appreciation and. Um, consciously cultivating that sense of, of gratitude and loving kindness uh, for the body along the way and uh, seemingly had uh, had very very good effects so you don't have to be going on long walks or going off to the himalayas to work this out you can right here in the amravati temple in your in your room in your kuti and just see how this works yeah as you're uh, as you're standing in the in the the, the line in the sala you know, to to waiting for your uh, food at lunchtime or breakfast time, just to appreciate, you know, how the body can stand up, how the eyes work, how the, your, uh, your your teeth are not hurting you today. <laughs> These kind of simple things you might think that, that sounds really hokey and stupid. And, you know, I'm not going to say stand there saying thank you to my knees all day long, but uh, it's not uh, something one has to do all day long. But just this simple way of appreciating the body and uh, not just. Um, following those uh, habitual and uh, reactive patterns, but uh, relating to the to the body with that sense of appreciation, gratitude, loving kindness, and then seeing what the results are. And if I'm completely wrong, then you can you can let me know. <laughs> but uh, personally, I found that uh, it, it's it's very very helpful. And and certainly, when you have aches and pains in the, in the meditation hall, in your knees or your back or, or wherever, then consciously bringing loving kindness to that part of the body and not just relaxing the attitude towards it but also relaxing the muscles rather than tensing up against that painful feeling but relaxing into it opening the heart to it it has a, uh, a again a very very um, uh, easing effect it, it reduces the causes of of tension so in a, in a similar way to talking before if you use a uh, a, a means which is friendly, which is harmonious, which uh, which is non-aggressive, then you get that result. So if you're relating to pain with a quality, an attitude of acceptance, of kindness, uh, of ease, then that uh, that's conducive to having a, a relaxing and a easeful effect. Now, this um, Lumpur's comment then on existence, again, this comes from the Latin, X means out, like exit. Literally means <laughs> it means uh, go go out or goes out. Uh, I think it, exit literally means she or he goes out. So that's what exit means in in English from the Latin. So existence, stens is like the, from the word stand. That's uh, again in Latin. And so existence, that which stands out. So when Lumpur is talking about non-existence and praising non-existence, again he's not being. Uh, nihilistic but in a way you can say the dhamma is that which doesn't stand out the the uh, that is it's the fundamental reality and um the the sense world uh when the mind attaches substance and and reality 
to see sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, and emotion, then that is uh, at, uh, that is standing out from that ground of, of the Dhamma, if you like. And the, the more solid that the mind makes uh, those things, and the more that the mind creates the world of things as solid and substantial, then the more it is standing out, it, it's existing. Uh, and so when the Lumpur is talking about non-existence, it means, in a sense, the heart rests uh, embodying Dhamma. Uh, I'd like to share with you a very, very insightful, brief um, uh, comment or, or uh, insight of uh, Ajahn Panyawado, uh, who's, uh, again, there's the, the monk in that portrait painting above the, the Dhamma seat there. So he made this, this very helpful comment on this area. He said, the five khandas exist, uh, but they're not real. The Dhamma is real, but it doesn't exist. Using the word exist in exactly the same way. And I, I'm aware that English is not the first language of most people here, but um, uh, that I feel if you take that simple <laughs> statement and reflect on that, that's a very, very powerful teaching. So the five khandas, or we can say the, the the experiential field, the sense world, uh, that exists, it stands out, but it's not real. The five khandas are empty. They are sunya. Uh, they are like, as the Buddha put it, like a, a lump of foam on a river, like a, uh, like a water bubble, like a, a mirage, uh, like a, a conjuring trick, um, like a, uh, they're coreless, they're like a, 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 a banana plant, uh, that they have no no heart, no coreness, no essence. So the five khandas are not real, but they exist, they stand out. The Dhamma is real, but it doesn't exist, it doesn't stand out. And so uh, that might make things more confusing, <laughs> but uh, I feel that's an extremely beautiful, you know, very, very wise and succinct expression of the teaching and something to really reflect upon. So we have the word Dhamma, but the word Dhamma is not the Dhamma itself. It's a, a sound in, in Pali language. It's a, a, a conceptual form in the, in the mind that represents that fundamental, timeless, uh, non-personal, universal quality. So we talk about the Dhamma as uh, apparent here and now, sanditiko, uh, akaliko, timeless, ehipasiko, these... Um, these words are talking about the or pointing to the quality of the Dhamma, but the Dhamma itself, you can't um, imagine it. You can't create an image of Dhamma. It's like a, it's uh, it's unimaginable, <laughs> unimaginable. Um, and so, to our thinking mind or the mind that likes to create forms or ideas or concepts, that's frustrating. It can be, but. The, the realization of Dhamma, it's, it's an awakening to a reality. It's not a conceptual activity. It's not a, a verbal or, a, a, or a something that depends upon an image or can be represented in an, an image, but it's a, a, a quality of the heart that can be actualized, can be realized, can be, can be known. So uh, reflecting on this passage where Lumpur is talking about non-existence, he's not talking about annihilation or that they, or like the Buddha said, I don't speak about the annihilation of an existing being. That's misunderstanding. You say what a being is, is that, that is a, 
a, a set of forms like a body and a personality a center of experience that it exists in so far as yes there's a body here there's a personality um, but if the mind uh, doesn't attach to that or doesn't identify with that then there's a realization of of dhamma of, of non-existence i remember not, not this talk as i as i i'm not absolutely sure <laughs> but i remember i think it was a sunday afternoon talk uh, uh, when lumpur was speaking in the the sala and uh, and he said uh, he was speaking on this theme uh, it, it might have been this talk i'm not sure I, th I thought it was in my memory has it in the summertime but i could be i could be wrong and he was sitting up on the dhamma seat and he said i'm going to stop existing watch and he sat, and then you could see a few people go what imagine somebody's going to pop like a bubble or it's going to vanish or he, i thought monks weren't supposed to do magic tricks you know but he said i'm going to stop existing and he, Did you see? <laughs> and from the outside, you know, you, you, uh, if you were, uh, weren't looking closely, you know, you couldn't see any difference at all. But he was, at that moment, he was changing his attitude internally and letting go of Ajahn Sumedho, letting go of the the person, the body, the personality, and uh, you know, it, it was it was certainly got people's attention. And it wasn't like his body disappeared from view, but it, as an internal change, then. He, at that moment, as I recall, he said, "I'm going to stop existing," and then, and then, whoop, sort of came back into "quote unquote" you know, existence. Um, again, it wasn't sort of a magical performance, like a, a monk doing a, a, a feat of psychic power as such, but a, a in a way, a demonstration of the the application of of insight. So, um, I hope that's something that people can uh, can appreciate. Does that make sense? Any questions, thoughts? Yes. Don't be shy. Roman, yes, please. There's a microphone right here. Hello, Ajahn. Um, so in the last couple of weeks, I've been getting Can you into... speak a bit louder? Yeah, okay. In the last couple of weeks, I've been getting into uh, Ashtanga Yoga and Kundalini Yoga. I had a little phase in my early 20s. And so I wondered, because the way I understand it uh, in the Theravada teaching, it's more about watching the bodily sensations and the breath as such as they are without manipulating them too much. And so... I found that the pranayama exercises, breath retention and energetic seals and such, they actually really help to calm the mind. So in a way, it might sound paradoxical, but one can both let go and control the breath at the same time if one thinks of the yogic approach as the approach of control and the mm, Buddhist approach as the approach of non-doing so oh am i getting it wrong uh, i would say that that's a wrong understanding i mean i and i talk about this very very often that it, it is a common misunderstanding that people and, and i think it's a, a way people have heard particular meditation instructions you know when a teacher says just watch or be the observer or be the one who knows or, or be the witness 
and it uh, is read or understood as representing a kind of passivity. But I've said over and over again, over the last 20 plus years, I've said over and over again, watching yourself making choices is still just watching. Watching the mind make a decision and take action is still just watching. <laughs> you know, the, our ability to choose, take action, um, uh, have you know, an, uh, intention and and uh, they make choices is not counter to the way things are. It's part of the way things are. I don't, literally, I really couldn't count how many times I've said that. So it's it's a really uh, uh, a misunderstanding that, uh, the, the, of the Buddha's teaching as a kind of quite what they call a quietist or or passive teaching as if you're just sort of freezing yourself trying to just be some kind of like a video camera that just sits there and records data um, that's a, a radically incorrect understanding otherwise how could the Buddha have made a decision how could he have chosen to go different places how could he have uh, uh, come up with all of the the initiatives that he made during his whole lifetime the teachings he gave it's just if he was just watching he would hardly have left the ground under the bodhi tree <laughs> or maybe he would have gone off to be a hermit somewhere nearby and uh so it's not a teaching of passivity so i say that's a, a wrong understanding and that there's plenty of aspects of buddhist practice that involve a lot of activity and engagement and using the the um the different aspects of body and mind and maybe in in, in i'm not uh, uh, that acquainted with things like Ashtanga Yoga and uh, Pranayama or Kundalini and such like but that kind of conscious using of the body energies and steering the energy and um, particularly through the breath and so on there's uh, if, if you read a, a a book called Keeping the Breath in Mind by Sir Ajahn Tanisro's translation of Ajahn Lee Damodaro's teachings the the, the whole uh, so description of mindfulness of breathing is around body energies and moving body energies around and working with them in different ways I mean not the entirety of the book but a large part of it similarly Ajahn Sajito's book meditation a way of awakening there's a lot of, uh, of speaking about the body energies and, and consciously working with uh, body energies in various different ways so uh, but also just walking meditation <laughs> Yeah. and uh, and or working meditation uh, and that the idea of uh, a choice or an action or a uh, um a direction being given it by the mind is somehow some sort of intrusion upon reality or intru or some departure from attunement to dhamma is a really is a wrong understanding i would say and that uh, it, otherwise how could um right uh, inte sama sankapo like right right intention or right resolution uh, right action right livelihood right effort how could they be part of the eightfold path you know they're all things to do with making choices taking action doing things um, and particularly right effort you know right intention and right effort there's a lot of doing there's a lot of directing and choosing um, and discernment involved in that but yet all of that aspect is a part of the the path and directly conducive to enlightenment so that uh, uh, I, I would say that it's um, when we talk about things like just watching then just watching yourself making choices and seeing what the results of those choices are 
is also part of just watching. And that uh, I'm not saying that, um, that there can't be particular practices where you deliberately uh, sort of switch that off or or, um, uh, or try to, to not follow any intention at all. I mean, that, that, that one can do that, but I would say that's certainly not a, um, a, a practice that I would recommend or I don't see a lot of value in that. But like any kind of mental training, you know, you, you could do that if you wished. But uh, I would say that that just as an exercise in itself, just like you could choose to stand for 20 hours if you wanted to, you say, I'm just going to stand for, for 20 hours and not sit or, or, or walk or lie down. I'll just stand in this spot for 20 hours. Okay, you can do that. But in and of itself, it's not going to be something that, that's, that's liberating. So similarly, you could not follow intentions. Uh, but I, I would say to, to think that any intention or steering or, or um, uh, decision-making is a departure from attunement to reality is a, is a, in terms of the Buddhist understanding of the Buddha's way is, is not, a, it's not a correct reading of the teaching. If I just may ask a little follow-up question. Sure. Maybe I wasn't specific enough. So what the Tibetans might call tumo or mm -hmm. like really that fire energy, whatever you want to call it, that, um, um, that why is it that in, there's not so much um, instruction about actual physical exercises to activate that? I mean, you mentioned Ajahn Lee, but he went to India and learned the pranayama there. Uh, if I recall, um, Arjun Tanisaro talking about it correctly. Um, and on his way back, apparently he had a, a stroke or a heart attack and healed himself with uh, these the speci uh, specific techniques that he had learned in, in India. So um, I, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that um, if, if this is roused, then there's like, I sometimes wonder when the, when the Buddha says rouse energy, um, that it was common knowledge at that time that uh, that's uh, related to certain physical exercises or preparations, which then in the course of time might have been lost. Maybe so. I, I don't know. <laughs> I really, I really couldn't say. Uh, the, the, the uh, certainly there isn't, uh, as far as I know, much that indicates that in the Pali Canon. Um, the the individual practice of uh, many sort of Buddhist meditators, certainly in the in the West, um, and also in Asia, it involves you know, some uh, aspect of, of uh, exercises that people bring in. Sometimes qigong or tai chi is uh, is brought in as well, like in in Southeast Asia and uh, in the Northern Asian world. Um, in India, then people doing hatha yoga, and uh, also in, in in Thailand, I know that uh, there's uh, quite a few monasteries where hatha yoga is taught. So I think you know, th those things are very compatible. And uh, uh, just uh, uh, as I was saying earlier, I think that having an experiment experimental attitude and seeing what what's beneficial, what what helps, and if things are compatible, they work well together as a supportive. Uh, skillful means, then, then great, you know, take them and use them. Whether they were there originally in the in the Buddha's time, or there was sort of common disciplines that just never, they were so obvious that nobody ever mentioned them, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't say. I'm not that much of a historian or, or, or an expert, but uh, I think if we discover things that are valuable uh, and uh, we have, uh, say, the uh, the the ability and the the interest to to develop them, then great. You know, they they, they help us along the way. But I I couldn't say if they were they were there and they they disappeared. I, I do know that there's sort of tangential references. Um, to, uh, like I say, the body energies and such like. And um, one interesting story uh, that I, I couldn't tell you whether it was true or not, but um, one elder Sri Lankan um, terror who, who stayed with us back in the, uh, in the late 80s for a rains retreat, uh, he said that uh, the Buddha had so much energy moving up through his spine and through the, the crown of his head, that's why he's represented as having the flame coming uh, off the top of his head was there was so much prana shooting through his system. He said it was like a sort of six-lane motorway shooting up his spine. And he said that was the reason why the Buddha couldn't turn his neck. When he turned, he turned from the waist. <laughs> so it's called the elephant look. So that is, that's substantiated in the, in the Pali. So the Buddha never turned his neck. He turned from the waist because there was so much juice uh, so much prana going up through the spine that he, he, he couldn't turn his neck, so he turned from the waist. It's called the, the elephant look. So I was told that by a highly reputable and um, uh, respected uh, Sri Lankan elder, and uh, that might well be true. But uh, apart from that, there's not a lot of references that I know that relate to the Pali tradition. Thank you. So a little bit more, maybe. Things are as they are, suchness, as isness. So as isness is our business. You're looking for another Buddhist motto. Lumpur Sameda didn't say that. I just, I just said that. In Western values, the emphasis is on being special. A unique individual, a child of God. This attitude is very much supported by culture and religion. There are the, quote, chosen people of God, unquote. The sects which feel that they've been called by Jesus and all the rest haven't. And they are the ones who are going to make it and live in an, an, in an eternal paradise. But what happens to you if you have all these views of being special, being an individual, all those self-views? From my own experience, the result of all this was suffering. There seemed to be a tremendous investment in having a unique and sizzling personality. Sometimes I used to think, wait a minute, maybe I don't have a very nice personality. Maybe I don't have any personality. There was so much anxiety, frustration, jealousy, and fear. You didn't want to be a failure, didn't want to be a mediocrity, to be the ordinary guy. It was very painful to be always caught in that desire to become somebody. And as long as you have that desire, you're always going to fear that you'll become something that's not very good, because fear and desire go together. At first, our path may seem a bit hopeless. Sometimes a lifetime's tendencies and habits, habits towards becoming and emphasizing yourself as an individual personality are so strong that you feel you shouldn't be that way. You should try to be nobody. But trying to be nobody 
is still being somebody. What I'm suggesting is not to become nobody, but to realize the truth of mind. Then you can abide in truth, where you feel most at ease and peaceful, rather than in this endless round of existence, in which you're always seeking to be reborn again. You'll never find contentment in any level of existence. They never satisfy, not even the best of them. The most blissful conditioned states, the jhanas, are still unsatisfactory for us. The Buddha made it very clear that all forms of human happiness and worldly success are really terribly disappointing, because they can only gratify us temporarily. As soon as that gratification is gone, we're caught in the same process of again seeking to be reborn, to become something else, to find another moment of happiness. Life becomes so wearisome. To live in a body with the right attitude, begin to accept it as it is, with all that might be right and wrong with it, whether it's young or old, male or female, strong or weak. This is the path to true peacefulness. Do not seek to identify with your body or try to make it into something else. When we know truth, we can pick up our identity as is appropriate to time and place, without this becoming an attachment. We feel we can manifest and disappear according to what is needed. I'm not saying that we should just stand among the trees for the rest of one's life. It can be something that is useful and helpful to others, but no longer as a permanent role we're trying to hold on to and to defend. So we begin to feel a sense of freedom and ease. So uh, again, I think this is uh, something where uh, probably all of us have had a gone through the uh, childhood and teenage years and the school systems in our various countries and uh, growing up and then even in, not in this in the workplace but even even in monastic life that sense of wanting to be someone or to to be somebody special or to to sparkle and you know dazzle and impress and be a success and be approved of and such like um that for that sense of wanting to be someone, or as he says, wanting to be nobody, like, don't notice me. How can I get through life without anybody seeing me? How can I, how can I hide away? Uh, and um, the, uh, uh, whether we want to be someone or we want to be nobody, you know, one of which is bhavatana, to, to be something, or vibhavatana, to, to be nothing, then uh, both of those are, uh, as he points out, destined to, to bring dukkha, so that uh, the uh, the points that he's making here, that if we need to exist, if we need to be a personality, need to do something like sit in front of people doing a dhamma reading with a, a, a video camera and a microphone and being uh, engaged and, and doing something, we can we can use the faculties that we have, the, the persona that we have, but that's not something that we uh, have to depend upon or take as sort of. The, the absolute truth and substance of who and what we are. The word persona, again from the Latin, there's lots of lots of Latin, Latin and Greek in these teachings. So persona, per means through in Latin, sona is sound. So persona is a mask, like, that, uh, like a, an actor in the Greek or Roman theater, they would wear masks. And so the, the a persona is that which the sound goes through. So a person is a mask. So if you need to be uh, a, a monk, you need to be a nun, you need to be the transport manager, you need to be the, the Ajahn, then you put on that mask, you, you 
perform that that particular existence. You you do that standing out. But when the the time is finished, when six o'clock or seven o'clock comes around, which is any minute now, <laughs> then close the book, uh, say uh, uh, say the, the the closing, depart, and then uh, you know, stop uh, existing in that same way. That you put it on, you do your thing, you take it off. So there's no uh, taking refuge in being something and there's also no refuge being taken in in not, not being that thing but rather there's the the heart embodies that quality of, of awareness that knows that uh, uh, coming into form uh, doing that thing but existing being and then letting go that uh, non-existing and uh, uh, say not manifesting or not performing or not uh, say taking shape in in that way so then we, we find ourselves very, very adaptable. We, uh, when we need to, to perform a particular role or have a, 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 a way to respond to a situation, someone that we're living with is very upset, so we console them and help them. Uh, someone cracks a joke and we, we find we laugh along with them. Uh, you walk into a, a, an, in, uh, a, a, an empty room and you're, you're quite happy to make a cup of tea, sit down and be by yourself and not have to be anything or do anything. Just, uh, to be present and to, to know this moment that uh, we are uh, able to 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 be or to to uh, to take form, take shape, or to, to not be to to just uh, attend to the qualities of the present, and there's nothing lacking in that sense of uh, of not engaging with a persona. So that these are are very um, say I think. Essential principles to get a, uh, in, in, in terms of how to live harmoniously rather than trying to perform a role or trying to be something that you think that the people around you want you to be. <laughs> you know, she wants me to be like this, he wants me to be like that. If I act in the way that I think that they want me to act, then they will be happy and that's a good thing. It's a lot of stuff to carry around. <laughs> it's a, a lot of a lot of doing, and especially if you've got five people in the room who are all expecting you to be different things then that's that's a lot of work but if uh, instead of, of buying into those roles or trying to be something uh, trying to take a, a form to please others from your idea of what they want or what uh, uh, is uh, to be done then you're, you're coming from a, a much more intuitive place that then you can relate to different people in different different ways uh, totally based on attunement to the time place the situation and not from an idea or, or from self-view or from a plan so i will leave things there for today or for these thoughts for consideration <laughs>